Well, this morning I have an introduction to my introduction. And so the first comes the introduction to the introduction, so hang in with me. The word altar um, first appears in the Bible in Genesis 8 when Noah first came off the ark, which I understand they recently found at Grandfather Mountain. I'm kidding, it's in Kentucky. He built an altar and offered sacrifices, listen, of every clean animal and every clean bird. That's a lot of sacrifices, but I get it. Because if you're on the ark with those animals cleaning up their stuff for a year, I'd want to kill some too. Of course, this idea of sacrificing to God goes all the way back to Genesis 4, when Cain and Abel presented their offerings to the Lord. And so throughout the Old Testament, altars and sacrifices, which go together because you put sacrifices on altars, they appear regularly. Abraham built lots of altars. So did Isaac and Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon. The list is long. Um, the, the entire book of Leviticus contains instructions for sacrifices to be offered at the altar, go together, at the tabernacle, later the temple. So altars and sacrifices played an important role in the Old Testament. But then when you get to the New Testament, the practice seems largely to disappear, or I perhaps should say change. See, you don't build altars anymore. And of the 432 times the word altar or altars appear in the Bible, they only appear 23 times. That's like 5% in the New Testament, mostly in reference to those Old Testament altars. Of course, through our study of Hebrews, we found that's because all of those Old Testament altars and sacrifices pointed where? To, to, to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, you need to hang with me, we, we read of one of those few times an altar in the New Testament refers to a New Testament altar. Chapter 13 said this, we, that is we Christians, have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, that is those still under Judaism, have no right to eat. That's an interesting verse, but from the context we found that he was referring to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. There is a sense in which the cross can be called the final altar. He's also made the point that since Jesus' death is the one and final sacrifice, there remains no sacrifice for sins anywhere else to include even in those Old Testament practices. And so you can't leave Jesus and go back to an altar and start sacrificing animals again. Can't do it. That, that won't work. Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross are the final sacrifice, and dare I say the final altar to which we look. End of first introduction, start of second. It begs some questions for me. Why then do many churches call the area here at the front of the auditorium, front of the worship center, usually right here in front of the pulpit. Why do they call that an altar? Come, come to the altar. Is that in the Bible? I mean, what kind of altar? Ours isn't very pretty, but what kind of altar is this? What are we sacrificing? I can remember one of my seminary professors getting quite animated about the practice, saying this is not, in fact, an altar. For the Christian, there is one altar and one sacrifice, and there is a sense in which he was right. Further, 
Why do churches call the invitation at the end of their worship services, what do they call it? And you got it, an altar call. That's kind of interesting. Is that in the Bible? What are we sacrificing? We're not exactly sure when the practice earned that name. Most uh, point to the end of the 19th or the beginning of the 20th centuries. Yeah, perhaps earlier, but at least then. For example, pointing to Charles Finney and his revivals where he would encourage people to respond to the message by coming where? Does anybody remember? You weren't alive then, except for the last class people. Um, oh, that's mean. They're up there right now. I can say that. <laughs> he encouraged them to come to the mourner's bench, presumably to mourn over their sin and find Jesus as their savior. Regardless, here's the point. In church history, it's a relatively new practice. 2,000 years, the last couple hundred years, this idea of extending an invitation or an altar call to sacrifice what? It's what an altar's for. Would it be better said to come and accept or trust a sacrifice already made on an altar which we cannot repeat? In my years here at Alliance, it has not been our practice to extend an invitation at the end of our worship services to give an altar call. And that has not been without controversy or comment or criticism. Many have questioned our obvious evangelical oversight. Perhaps you have. We've had cards written Phone messages left by people aghast that we would not extend an altar call. One lady, having just visited the church, left a rather strong message, starting with, in King James English, woe be unto you. She said it, yeah, she said, <laughs> she, she said it several times, woe be unto you. And as humorous as it was, it was also challenging. Google the word altar call and you'll find lots of articles about the practice. Some for, some against. Google invitation songs and you'll get lists by the dozens. I found 175 songs long to include perennial favorites such as, are you ready? Just as I am, I surrender all and come just as you are. Some of you, like I, can remember singing many, many verses of just as I am, hoping someone would respond so you could go to lunch. And I say that, actually, to some personal shame. I mean, who are we trying to hurry? The people, the pastor, the Holy Spirit? I suppose the biblical basis for the altar call is to give an opportunity for people to respond publicly to confess with their mouths Jesus as Lord. As if the altar call is the only place that that can be done. Now, to be clear, I am not opposed to the practice. But again, it is a new development found in revivals, crusades, and festivals then mimicked by the church in an effort to put on many evangelistic crusades every Sunday to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. You understand? It was well-intentioned, but here's, the, here's an important point. Crusades, stadiums are filled with lots of unbelievers. Churches presumably are filled with lots of believers. It's a different audience. 
But I would suggest perhaps that we should do one every so often. I'll admit that. But back to my questions. Why an altar call and what is it we are sacrificing? A more fundamental question is this. Do Christians still make sacrifices? And right now, you may be rightly confused. You say, well, no, not for salvation. In fact, you may rest assured we will not be slaughtering any animals up front because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Fido is safe. For the Christian, the sacrifice of Christ on the altar of his cross is the one and final sacrifice to which we look for salvation. We don't sacrifice anything. He did. He took our sins in his body and sacrificed what? Everything. So those end of service events are more rightly called, and they call them some, invitations. Invitations to repent and believe the gospel, to trust Christ and his finished work alone for salvation. That is, if we are talking about an invitation to believe the gospel. Again, the fundamental question, are there times we call for Christians to sacrifice not for salvation, but sanctification to grow in being like Jesus? Are there sacrifices that Christians make today? Are you confused? There are. Not to become Christians, but because we are Christians. And so perhaps we can call for an, uh, uh, we, we can make an altar call. And right now you're thinking, are you, are you for them or against them? You decide. Read the text with me in our ongoing study of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, two verses that say this. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So apparently, we do sacrifice. Again, these are not sacrifices we offer to provide for our salvation, but having been saved, there are sacrifices that Christians make. After all, if Jesus' cross was indeed an altar of sacrifice, and it was, then when he calls us to take up our crosses daily, there is a call to self-sacrifice. And of course, many of us know the very famous verse in Romans 12, therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy what? Sacrifice. Interesting. We take up our crosses daily, instruments of death, and then we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We die daily, but we get to keep living as sacrifices. So yes, we do sacrifice daily in pursuit of sanctification, in pursuit of holiness to be like Jesus. So what do those sacrifices look like? Here the author of Hebrews lists a couple. First, there's the sacrifice of worship. And second, there is the sacrifice of work. Now, I'm using those words colloquially because some of you I know are going to say, well, everything that we do in our lives is, should be worship to God. And you would be right. But I'm using it the way that he uses it in verse 15 to speak of the, 
the, the, a, a verbal worship, which we just did, and then also uh, an action, uh, work, what we do as followers of Christ. So let's begin with the sacrifice of worship in verse 15. Through him, that is through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. By the way, those same words appear in Leviticus 7 and Psalm 50 to speak of Old Testament believers offering sacrifices of thanksgiving. It's very important, okay? Even in the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices at prescribed times. It was usually cake. Prescribed times, sacrifices of thanksgiving. But what is a sacrifice of praise? He goes on to tell us. It is the fruit of lips... He's talking about verbal praise. Ver- Listen, verbal proclamation, verbal praise. And did you notice the word continually? I mean, I'm okay with praising occasionally, but continually, that's a bit challenging, which means it is not just on Sundays, but it does include Sundays. Let me just take a little aside. When we gather corporately, to worship in song, we're singing to one another, and we are singing to him. And he commands us here to, to, to verbally praise. Now, I sit through three, three worship services, and sometimes I look around. And some of you are singing boisterously, hands raised, and it's wonderful. And some of you are standing there, hands folded. And I want to challenge you to verbally praise our God. That's why we gather it's one of the reasons we gather on Sunday mornings is to worship our great God. You say, I know, but I don't, like, I don't like some of our worship. I don't like some of our songs. And to quote Francis Chan, that's okay. That's okay. We weren't here to worship you anyway. We are here to worship God. So when you stand there and you don't, I'm going to say this very gently, not even in my notes. I'm going to step away from the pulpit. I'm in trouble. When you stand there and you don't, you're being disobedient to the scripture. Because he tells us it's a fruit of lips. It also means we don't just praise. Notice he says praise continually. It means we don't just praise when things are going our way. We like to praise God for his goodness toward us as we count goodness. But he says continually. That means all the time. Reminds me of the very familiar passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but the very first thing that jumps out at me is the all-encompassing nature of those commands. What do I mean? Look at the commands. We are to rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Not exactly how he says it. He uses words like always, without ceasing, in everything. In other words, do these things all the time. Now, I don't know about you, but I prefer this passage read like this. Rejoice when things are going your way. Pray when you have needs. And when you want something. Isn't that when you pray? That's when I pray. And then you can give thanks when you get what you want. I know, I know, that sounds very selfish. So we would never say that, but if we were honest, isn't that the way most of us do it? We rejoice when things are going away. When life 
going our way. When life is relatively problem-free, our kids are agreeable, we're getting along with our spouses or our parents, the bills are paid, we like our jobs or our classes, things are going our way, we, just like we would write the script. And so we can rejoice and be glad. This is the day the Lord has made, we wake up saying, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Certainly he doesn't want me to rejoice in my bad days. He doesn't make my bad days, does he? As for prayer, well, it's easiest to remember to pray when I need something. After all, we know God is God. He can answer my prayers and meet whatever needs I may have. I mean, he does own the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Can I tell you the context of that in Psalm 50? I mentioned a little bit earlier, Leviticus 7 and Psalm 50. Can I tell you the, the context of that? He says, listen, you bring burnt offering to me. That's great, but do you know that I don't need it? If I had anything that I needed, I wouldn't tell you. After all, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Instead, he says, offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. That's the context. Not so that you can claim your cattle. It's all his, you see. And when he meets those needs, del delivers me from trials, makes my life happy, then I can give him thanks. It's easy to remember to thank God when I get what I want. That's not the way that Paul or our author writes. Paul said to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in everything. And our author says to offer the sacrifice of praise continually. Not just when I feel like it, not just when it's easy. Paul has to end the whole thing by saying, and this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Meaning it is God's will that we rejoice, pray, and give thanks, praise our author's word all the time. And we're in Hebrews 13. We've been in the book for 16 months now, and some of you say, I know. Going for a record, that's Matthew, four years. We know the author is writing to persecuted, suffering Christians because I've reminded us of that almost every week. And now he gets to the end of the book, the last chapter, and he has the audacity to say, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Dude! We are suffering greatly. Martyrdom is right around the corner. I don't feel like praising. I feel like complaining and whining, or even worse, I feel like accusing you, God. And I want to suggest that you can do some of that, not the accusing part. It's okay to pour your hearts out to the Lord, but do not forget that he is sovereign, he is in control, and he always has our best in mind. So the author writes to these suffering Christians and to you, today, in the midst of your very challenging and difficult circumstances, today, and says through him, that is reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and what he has done, let us continue, that means all the time, offer up a sacrifice of praise. So, Christians do sacrifice. Maybe it's a sacrifice because it costs us something. It costs us something to be, have an attitude of praise even when we don't feel like it or don't want to, when we are suffering, when our circumstances would not call for it. We do it through him, reminding ourselves of the gospel. We are of all people most blessed. It goes further to explain what kind of praise to God. The reference is that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Yes, you can certainly live a life of praise in your actions, but here he is specifically talking about words, verbal praise. And that praise is found in thanksgiving, gratitude. Again, remembering the plight of the readers. 
some of you readers suffering in the midst of it offer the sacrifice of praise in thanksgiving. Can I tell you that when I was a younger believer, it used to irritate me when people were always thanking God for this or praising God for that or even worse, saying Lord willing at the end of every sentence. Now it is sometimes true that those words become empty, meaningless, mindless sayings. You know what I'm talking about. You've known people like that. But perhaps, just perhaps, we should have the praise and thanks of God on our lips more readily. Maybe, in, for me, maybe instead of being so irritable, I should have been convicted. Paul said, rejoice always in everything, give thanks. Again, I understand. You say, just a minute, you don't know my life, Paul, Scott. You don't know what I have to put up with at home. You don't know about things at work or school. You don't know the financial challenges that I'm facing. You don't know the physical problems I have. That's right, I don't. But Paul, too, was writing to a young church facing opposition from, from without and division from within, and he says, rejoice. It doesn't matter what circumstances you are facing, rejoice. It does not matter if things are going your way or not, rejoice. It does not matter if your life is unfolding the way that you would write the script, rejoice, because God is at work in your life. Rejoice. I am reminded of the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis. If there was ever a griper about his lot in life, it was he. Jacob was one negative kind of guy. To listen to him, everyone and everything was out to get him. For example, at one, I mean, he's always talking about dying. I mean, it took him forever to die, but he was always talking about it. At one particular point in his life, after his son Joseph had been sold into slavery by his 11 brothers, a famine hit the land. Of course, we know in the interim, Joseph has been promoted to prime minister in Egypt. So Jacob sent 10 of his, 10 of his sons down to Egypt to buy some gr grain. He, he doesn't want to send his second favorite son, his youngest son. So he sends 10 of them to buy some grain. They come back with the grain, but without Simeon, one of the sons. And what's more, the prime minister of Egypt has told the brothers, don't come back for more grain unless you bring that last brother of whom you've told me, Benjamin. I know that all gets confusing. This is the point. At this point in the story, when Jacob finds out that Simeon is a prisoner in Egypt and the prime minister, who he does not know is Joseph, but the prime minister wants to see Jacob's youngest son, Jacob cries out to his sons. This is what he says. You have bereaved me of my children. Who's he talking to? His sons. How do you think that made them feel? You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Daddy's been gone for years. Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Wah! Everything is against me, he cries. Everyone's out to get me. My life is in the pits, but nothing could be further from the truth. Rather than everything being against him, everything was actually for him. Joseph was sold into slavery to save lives during the famine. The famine throughout the whole world was simply to get Jacob and his family to Egypt where God would fulfill his promises to this family to make them into a great nation. What Jacob perceived as evil was really for his good. God cares for and loves his covenanted people. Can that be true for you? We can rejoice knowing 
Somehow, even the difficult circumstances are accomplishing God's purposes in our lives. Have you ever thought of it that way? Can I remind you, God is never asleep. He never even takes a nap. He is not unaware of you. He's not left you, lost you for a single moment of time. He is doing what is best for you. And knowing that, we can praise God continually, rejoice always, and give thanks in everything. And let me suggest some other things. Paul says rejoice always. Again, that is an action word. He doesn't just say be joyful inside. He says rejoice. The emphasis on an outward expression of joy. In other words, don't just be joyful. Don't just experience the emotion of joy. Do something to let people know. Our author says praise God with the fruit of your lips. In other words, we say it. We are, after all, a people most blessed. People should look at Christians as the most joyful people on the planet. I did not say the happiest, because happy is conditioned upon outward circumstances. Joy is internal. I did not say the giddiest or the silliest. I said we should be the most joyful. We have every reason to be. Sure, it may be difficult, but we know what's coming. We've escaped My brothers and sisters, we've escaped the wrath of God. We know the forgiveness of sin. Heaven is our home. God himself is preparing a city for us. A country awaits. And in the meantime, he is working all things all together for our good. That's in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which we often quote out of context. It's in the context of suffering. So we can can rejoice out loud. One of the ways Christians are to be different is we are to express attitudes of deep-seated joy despite our circumstances, despite our problems. We actively praise. We don't find joy because of circumstances. We find joy in the midst, in spite of circumstances. Listen carefully. I am not saying that we don't experience trials. Of course we do. I'm not saying we never face sorrows or disappointments. I'm not saying that we never mourn or grieve. But even in the midst of it, we find joy. The overall disposition of the Christian is joy, and it is expressed, remember, fruit of your lips. And the way we do that is to remember, no matter how bad it gets, God is still in charge. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's never lost us, and he has our best in mind. Again, the actual praise, thanksgiving, gratitude. Paul says, in everything, give thanks. Gratitude along with love for one another is to be the hallmark of the Christian life. Notice Paul says to give thanks in everything. That's an important distinction, not for everything. We don't have to give thanks for the trials. We give thanks in the trials that God is accomplishing his purposes. Thank you, God, for the trial. May I have another? No. Thank God for your goodness to me in the midst of the trial. You see? I cannot possibly know everything that you are going through. I do not need to. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning as your Savior, there are some things I do know about you. I I, I know that he has given you the forgiveness of sins. I know that he has given you eternal life and heaven is your home. I know that he has given you his spirit as, uh, as a deposit guaranteeing the promise. I know that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I know that he has you exactly where he wants you. So I can say, praise him further. 
I can say rejoice, express the fruit of lips with thanksgiving. Which brings us very quickly, secondly, the sacrifice, second sacrifice of the Christian, verse 16, sacrifice of works. That is, not only do we say, but we do. Not only do we sacrifice with our lips, but with our actions. Look at verse 16. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. He lists two things that we ought to be doing. First, we should be doing good. That seems clear enough. Uh, By our righteous lives, we are doing good. Christians should be characterized by doing good as opposed to doing evil. We should be characterized by good work. We remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see what? Your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Again, Christians should be characterized by doing good. And through the centuries, we have been. Christians have not always done the right thing. They have not always done good. But listen, largely we have. We have been the ones building schools, building orphanages, building hospitals. We need look no further than across town to see Samaritan's Purse and the the good that Christians do in the name of Christ to alleviate suffering, to serve in the name of Christ in disaster, to provide much-needed medical care, to provide Christian boxes in the name of Christ with the message of Jesus. But to be clear, we should not leave good works to them to do across our country and across our world. We should do it in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. Christians should be known for doing good to one another, certainly, but even to unbelievers. Peter said it this way, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That's unbelievers. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of his visitation. In the day that he visits them with salvation, they may remember our good deeds and go, that's different. Further, not only do we do good deeds by our works, we do it with our resources. Before I get to that, it's not in my notes. I want us at Alliance to be known as a church that does good things, that does good deeds. I want, when people think of Alliance Bible Fellowship, those are good people doing good things. This last week, you may have read in the news or seen in the or heard from a friend or a family member or whatever about the double homicide that took place in our own community, right? Double homicide. A young man, 17 years old, still at the high school, brutally, viciously murdered his two parents. Eight children, um, three still at home. Uh, One was there, he locked him in, in, in the bedroom, 12-year-old boy said, don't come out, meaning it was premeditated. He knew what he was going to do. And he, and he murdered his parents. He was caught in Tennessee and in jail. It's awful. It's awful. My wife was, Tana was reading to me the update from the newspaper last night. She's just weeping as she was reading it to me. And yesterday... Right before the joy prom, I get a phone call from the funeral home saying, will Alliance not do, we're not doing it, but they didn't go to church here, but will they host the funeral? 
The reason Greg Hampton called me is because he knew we would. So the funeral will take place this Wednesday, 2 o'clock, in this room, and we will have an opportunity to do good works, to care for a family that is suffering greatly. I'm asking you to participate with us. Further, I get home from the joy prom, and Tana says to me, someone texted me, she doesn't go to our church, received a phone call from someone who doesn't go to our church, who said, I know that Alliance will provide a meal for this family on that much-needed day. Of course we will. But I was struck by the words, I know that they will. Because we are known as a church who does good. I'm encouraged by that. In the midst of this community tragedy, we can do good in the name of Christ. And I'm challenging us to do that. Okay? I'm out of time. Listen quickly. Not only do we do our good by our works, we do good with our resources. That is by sharing. That is by giving. Christians should be known as people who give generously and sacrificially. With such sacrifices, God is pleased. The word sharing in this context is talking about giving of your physical stuff. It's the word koinonia. It's a fellowship of bond. Uh, 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 and a, uh, it is a fellowship and a bond of life that unites us in Christ. We should be sacrificially giving people to those in need. This was characteristic of the early church. Everyone always says, I want to be like the early church. Well, this is how the early church was. They were a sacrificially giving people to one another. We over and over, we, those who shared, shared with those who did not. And as, as such, giving to one another was attractive to those outside the Christian community. Look at Acts chapter 2. Everybody wants to read this. Let's read it. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were done, or were taking place through the apostles, and all those who believed were together and had what? All things in common. This was not a forced communism. This was a loving community. Such that, listen, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Can you believe that? I have more than I need, and so I will give so that those who need have no need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, they were breaking bread from house to house. They were taking meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And as a result of all of that, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can you imagine what that was like? No needy people among them because they cared for one another physically with their resources, relationally because they spent time together. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to say it again. How many people know the way to your dinner table? Because they spent time together relationally, spiritually, because they spent time committed to the apostles' teaching. Christians are giving people in fact, 2 Corinthians 9, that famous chapter on Christian sacrificial joyful giving. I always quote it. Paul says, God increases our personal resources. He increases our prosperity, not so that we can buy a jet or a bigger house, so that we can give, not for our own personal physical benefit, but for our own personal spiritual benefit. So that, look at that, so that we can give and therefore, thereby increase the harvest of our righteousness, not saving righteousness, but sanctifying righteousness. And with such sacrifices, God is pleased. The reason people listen to me, American believer, the reason that we have so much is so that we can share much, so we can give abundantly. So Christians 
done, do sacrifice. They sacrifice praises of thanksgiving. They sacrifice selflessly in their time and resources to do good. They give. I should right now give an altar call. But I'm encouraging you right now where you are to sacrifice, to sacrificially give God what he commands Christians to give. Are you sacrificing? I'm encouraging you to do so and to find great joy in the process. Let's stand for prayer.